welcome to this week's episode of Ask the RD with your hosts Laura Schoenfeld and Kelsey Mark Steiner, staff nutritionists at chriscresser.com. Laura has a master's degree in public health nutrition and will soon be a registered dietitian. And Kelsey is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine. Laura and Kelsey will be answering your nutrition related questions on the show. So remember, to submit your questions through the online submission link at chriscresser.com. Now before Laura and Kelsey come on the show, I want to remind you that this show is just general advice and it should not be used in place of medical advice from a licensed professional. Now let's begin. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this week's Ask the RD podcast. I'm Laura Schoenfeld and on the other end is Kelsey Marksteiner. How are you doing today, Kelsey? Doing well, Laura. How about you? Good, a little cold. We're about to enter a cold front for the second time this year. Oh yeah, I know. Here, I'm in Massachusetts now, and just, we just had a nice, lovely snowstorm that coated all the trees, so it's the nature is just beautiful. Yeah, well, I'm about to head to North Carolina, so I'm excited to escape, hopefully, snow <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, lucky you. Yeah, so, okay, well, I think we're ready to get started with our first question, and the first one's for me, right, Kelsey? It is. All right, so here we go. My question is regarding paleo weight gain. I have been paleo for a few years, but don't do any of the paleo dessert cheating with nut breads, muffins, sugar substitutes, etc. No grains or sugar, including honey or other substitutes. No fruit or nuts as these make me gain weight. I do include bone broth, cheese, and butter and other good fats. In fact, I have increased the fats in my diet significantly. Coconut oil, coconut milk, avocado, olive oil, butter, lots of vegetables and meat. Everything is organic and or grass-fed, as this is easy to get in Australia. I do have a couple of coffee, coffees every day with coconut oil or MCT oil blended. I eat three meals a day with no snacking, as I don't feel hungry between meals with the increased fats. I walk at a moderate pace for one hour a day, do yoga three times a week, and no intense cardio. My problem is that I'm gaining weight. If these foods don't spike insulin, then why am I gaining weight? Because all the low-carb podcasts seem to agree that it's insulin-spiking foods that trigger fat storage. My fasting blood sugar averages about 80 and goes up to about 90 after eating, so it's not spiking. I'm really confused and starting to think I have to go back to a more conventional calorie counting method, but this would mean cutting out the fats as they are so high. Okay, so the reason I picked this question is because I think it's a very common belief and especially prevalent in the ancestral health community, even though it's oversimplified and potentially inaccurate from a physiological standpoint. And that belief is that the insulin spiking foods are the ones that trigger fat storage. I'm going to say something that might be considered controversial, but I do think it's important for people to understand. A spike in insulin is not necessarily required to store fat. So I'll say that again. A spike in insulin is not required to store fat. And while chronically high insulin encourages fat storage, the carbohydrate obesity hypothesis takes it a step too far by suggesting that in the absence of insulin fluctuations, that fat cannot be stored. This is the belief that drives, that drives low carbohydrate dieting. And I'm not saying that low carb isn't an effective weight loss strategy, but it's not simply because it limits insulin release. That belief is part of the reason why people either don't lose weight or can even gain weight on a low carb diet. And my favorite article dealing with this issue is actually written by Stefan Guionet. It's called The Carbohydrate Hypothesis of Obesity, A Critical Examination. 
And I'll link to it in the show notes so you can all read it for yourself. But I will give you the nutshell version um, as far as the way I understand what he wrote because he's a little bit of a high-level writer. But in this post, Stefan acknowledges that carbohydrate restriction can be effective as a weight loss strategy, but it's not a guarantee of weight loss for a couple of different reasons. He argues that rather than insulin signaling, that it's actually leptin signaling that mostly controls body fat accumulation or loss by its effect on the brain. And that's because leptin is a hormone that's made by fat tissue that acts on the brain to regulate food intake and body weight. It actually helps reduce appetite and decrease body weight if if you're leptin sensitive. So Stefan suggests that insulin's actual role is to coordinate the shift between various metabolic fuels as they become available through the diet. So if you eat carbohydrates, insulin shifts the body's metabolism to burning those carbohydrates. But as soon as you run out of the carbs that you've eaten, the body can shift back to using fat for fuel. So if you've eaten low carb but a ton of fat, the body will burn the fat that you're eating for fuel until that fat runs out, and then it'll continue burning the fat stored in your body. So insulin can be seen as more of a regulator of fuel use rather than solely a storage hormone. And Stefan explains it really well in his article, so I'm just going to read what he says so I don't, you know, mince words here. He says, if you eat a meal of 500 calories of carbohydrate, you will burn that carbohydrate under the direction of insulin, which will also make sure that body fats mostly stay inside your fat cells during the process. If you eat a meal of 500 calories of fat, you will burn fat instead of carbohydrate, but since you just ate fat, you aren't dipping into your body fat stores any more than you were when you ate carbohydrate. So this means that the laws of thermodynamics do apply to humans, and that if you eat more calories than your body burns, you will either store fat or at a minimum you will not tap into your fat stores for energy and thus weight loss will stall. And this is really important for people to understand because I think there's a prevalent myth out there that when you're eating low carb, you can just eat as much as you want and you'll still lose weight. This isn't true from a physics standpoint. If you're burning 2,200 calories a day and you're eating 2,500, so that's a surplus of 300 calories per day, you're likely going to gain weight, and at a minimum, you probably won't lose weight. And this, you know, as I have mentioned before in podcasts and questions that people have asked, your your metabolism really does fluctuate a lot. So, you know, if I say you're burning 2,200 calories a day, that's just what your body's actually burning and not just an estimate of potentially what you could be burning. But Stefan also argues that higher insulin release is associated with an increased level of satiety, which means that the more insulin that gets released in a meal, the more satisfied you feel after that meal. Now remember, protein also stimulates insulin release, so a high-protein, low-carb meal can actually be very satiating. But a high-fat, low-carb, and somewhat low-protein meal will likely not be satiating. In another part of Stefan's article, he argues that insulin actually reduces fat mass and that a higher fasting insulin is actually associated with a higher resting energy expenditure. So insulin is therefore a metabolic stimulant, and research indicates that insulin constrains food intake and body fatness through its action on the brain. And there are studies that have been done that demonstrate this that Stefan covers in his post. I know this is a lot of information to take in, and I do suggest reading the article, but I think the major takeaway from the article, as far as I'm concerned, is that a low-carb diet is not a guaranteed weight loss strategy. And ultimately, you really do need to eat fewer calories than you burn to lose weight. 
But the reason why this gets complicated is because it's really difficult to determine what your personal metabolic rate is without using some type of high-tech measurement device. And if you do significantly decrease your caloric intake, your metabolic rate ends up dropping to kind of match your reduction in intake. And this is why for many people, if they're following a low term, or I'm sorry, a long-term low calorie diet, this will lead to a stall in weight loss and potentially a rebound weight gain because their metabolism has dropped in its energy expenditure so significantly. And this also doesn't take into account the level of stress caused by either long-term severe caloric restriction and also low-carbohydrate diets because both of these can increase stress hormones like cortisol and those hormones stimulate fat storage. So if you're on a low-carb diet long-term and your weight loss stalls or if you're starting to gain belly fat, I would say that high cortisol could be an issue here. And I suppose I do also need to address the issue of weight as a measurement of health. Obviously, if your weight is increasing, but your clothes either fit the same or maybe they even become looser, it's likely that you're gaining muscle and you shouldn't really be concerned about, about the weight gain. But I don't think that this is usually an issue that people would be concerned enough about to ask a question. So I'll go ahead and assume that, this listen, that the listener is not wearing smaller clothes than they were before. Okay, so with all that said, here's what I would suggest to this particular person. First, they should take a three-day detailed food diary and do a diet analysis to determine their total caloric intake, as well as a macronutrient breakdown. They should compare this to their estimated caloric needs. And I'll link to two different websites that can be used to determine caloric intake and estimated energy expenditure. And again, like I mentioned before, this is just an estimate, but perhaps this person will see that they're eating a lot more than they're burning. And in this case, they'll need to practice some level of calorie counting to get back into a slight deficit. I think around 300 to 500 calories below their estimated needs should be enough to stimulate fat loss. And I wouldn't reduce any more than that. So as an example, the calorie needs calculator that I'm linking to suggests that you need 2200 calories per day to maintain your current weight. I think aiming for 1800 to 1900 per day is a good target. And if you want more personalized caloric estimation, you can get something like a calorie tracker, like a Fitbit or the Nike Fuel Band, which can help you determine what you're likely burning in a day. And I say likely because again, this is an estimate and not an exact measurement of caloric expenditure. You really need to be in some kind of um, you know, bod pod or use a metabolic cart to determine what your actual metabolic rate is. And if this person's not overeating, I would recommend replacing some of their fat calories with carbohydrate calories. So if you add 50 grams of carbohydrate to your daily intake, you would need to reduce your fat intake by about 22 grams. Again, this will require some food measurements to start out with and some calorie counting as well. But I don't want this person to add carbohydrates without removing an equal amount of fat because then they're just increasing their caloric intake and will likely not help with their weight loss. And the only reason why you might actually want to increase carbohydrates without reducing fat is if you use those calculators and you determine that you're significantly under eating, say by 500 calories per day below your needs. And in this case, an increase in calories could actually help trigger weight loss. I personally don't think most women should be eating less than 1500 calories per day. And I don't think most men should be eating less than 1800 calories per day. And I also think that adding more carbohydrates on days where you're more active can be helpful. And if you want to do a few days of low carb, save it for days where you're 
relatively sedentary. So maybe you're not doing the long walk that day or maybe you're not doing yoga. So finally, my last suggestion would be to add in some weight training into the workout routine. I think yoga is really great, but I do think one or two days of heavy weightlifting could help increase this person's metabolic rate and help them build muscle. And that could potentially help with fat loss, even if his or her weight stays stable. So of course, it's possible that the yoga this person is doing is fairly rigorous, but if it's not, then a few days of heavy weight training sessions could help here. And if the person is exercising an hour or two per day, but then sitting for the rest of the day, this could actually undo some of the metabolic benefits of exercise. So trying to stand for a couple hours rather than sitting the whole day would possibly be helpful too. And I know some of this sounds like a lot of work, and trust me, I hate calorie counting and measuring my food just as much as the next person. But honestly, I think this person could benefit from having a more clear idea of what his or her caloric needs are and whether or not they're surpassing those needs on a regular basis. Because even a couple hundred extra calories per day over what your body is actually using can cause weight gain. And that's actually really easy to do if you're eating an unlimited amount of fat. I think fat is great, and I think it's a very important component of the diet, but I also think it's easy to overeat if you're under the impression that you can just eat unlimited fat and not gain weight, which, as I explained, is not true. So I hope I've explained Stefan's article fairly well, or at least conveyed the overall message of it. Um, I do think that people should read it for themselves if they want more information, but I just don't think carbohydrate restriction is a magic bullet for weight loss for everyone, and I would hope that making the changes I recommended could be helpful if the person has found themselves gaining weight on a low-carb diet. Yeah, that was great, Laura. And, you know, I think part of the reason people think about low carb being very helpful for weight loss is because usually when you take out an entire or at least significantly reduce an entire macronutrient, uh, people tend to just eat less. So it's still about, you know, even then it still kind of comes down to the calories um, that they're eating. It's just because they're not necessarily thinking about cutting calories. They're just happening to do it by cutting the, the carbohydrates. But on the other hand, you know, if someone, which is what it sounds like is happening in this case, if they take out carbohydrates but then basically double or triple up on their fat, um, then yeah, you know, it's very easy easy to see how right. they wouldn't be losing weight and may, may even be gaining weight in that case. So I loved your explanation of that and I think it's so important for people to understand that even though hormones are absolutely important, um, you know, it's not completely only about the hormones. So it's not just insulin um, that comes into play when we're talking weight loss here. Right. And I think um, the insulin hormone just as a singular hormone is so misunderstood by so many people because we've kind of gotten this message that insulin is just a storage hormone and all it does is store fat. Right. Um, And it does a lot of other things. Like I mentioned in, in Stefan's article, he explains that insulin actually the presence of insulin not only reduces your appetite, but it also increases your metabolic rate. So um, one question that I saw in the forum asked by somebody was that they are eating a very high-fat diet and they always feel like they're still hungry yeah. as far as a physical sensation. And there's actually some evidence that insulin is an important component of appetite regulation. And if you're not if you're not increasing your insulin when you're eating enough, that your body is 
basically still under the impression that you haven't eaten and it doesn't reduce the hormone called ghrelin which is an ap appetite stimulating hormone so I, I think hormones play a huge role in body fat and a huge role in in the way that your body uses the food that you eat but it also affects your appetite it affects your metabolic rate it affects if you're still hungry once you finish a meal say you eat a thousand calories at a meal and you're still hungry because your insulin didn't go up then you know, you're not hungry because you need more right. calories. You're hungry because the ghrelin hormone hasn't been tapered off the way it would normally taper off if you had eaten carbohydrates. So there's, it's it's definitely a rabbit hole of some sort, but Absolutely. I just, I hope that people will read this article by Stefan because it's really, really good at explaining why the insulin obesity hypothesis is flawed. It's not 100% inaccurate. It's just flawed. And people that are using that hypothesis as a weight loss tool might be missing some important, you know, components of their diet that could actually help them either lose weight or not gain weight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that, Laura. That was great. Yeah, hopefully I don't get, uh, <laughs> I guess, chewed out on the, uh, the message board because, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are dedicated to their low-carb diets, but... Um... And, you know, there, yeah, there's always new research coming out, and I love to hear people's opinions that may not be the same as ours. I think that's fascinating, um, and as long as everybody's civil about it, I think we can all learn from each other. Right, and one last thing that I need to point out is that just because I'm saying this low-carb diet is not working for this user, that doesn't mean I don't think low carb can work for people. I do think people who are insulin resistant can really benefit from a period of low carb dieting. Um, I think people that have possibly 50 to 100 pounds of weight to lose can benefit from low carb. I just don't think that anyone that needs to lose weight or that they're trying to keep their weight stable is necessarily going to be doing themselves a favor by completely avoiding carbohydrates. And I'm not saying you have right. to eat 500 grams of carbohydrates a day, but you know, it does sound to me from this person's question that they're pretty darn strict about avoiding carbs. So, um, you know, if this person was my client, I would definitely try to figure out a meal plan that was a little bit higher in carbohydrates for him, him or her. I would assume it's a her, but I don't want to make any gross assumptions. So <laughs> anyway, so, you know, if I'm happy to chat with people in the comments if they have any questions or further evidence that they'd like to present about the carbohydrate hypothesis. Cool. All right. So I think the next question is for you. And this one's short, the question itself. So we'll see how long your answer is, but they ask... <laughs> Is there a supplement I can take when eating gas-producing foods? I have trouble with many of my favorite foods such as broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage. I don't want to eliminate them from my diet. This is a great question. So to me, it sounds like this person is experiencing something called FODMAP intolerance. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what FODMAP, FODMAP intolerance is, we'll go over it right now for you. So FODMAP stands for fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols. So these are short-chain carbohydrates that are poorly absorbed in the small intestine and are easily fermented by bacteria. They also help to bring water into the large intestine. Now, most people can eat these foods without an issue. Um, however, some people become more symptomatic than others when they eat foods that contain FODMAPs. So they'll experience symptoms such as bloating, gas, and diarrhea. 
A low FODMAP diet has been studied in the case of IBS and has been shown to be pretty helpful. And I think this is because, at least I would imagine, that a a higher FODMAP diet um, would just exacerbate some of those symptoms that they might be experiencing. Um, Because if they're already, you know, having diarrhea or bloating and gas, eating FODMAPs when they're intolerant to them would just make it infinitely worse. So there are some underlying factors as to why someone might have a FODMAP intolerance. And... I don't think we have all the answers about this yet, and certainly research is coming out all the time, um, and FODMAP is a pretty, at least I I think it's a pretty hot topic right now. So I think we're seeing a lot of of stuff about this coming out, and right now we're just doing the best we can with the science that's out there. So gut health has been shown to be a factor in developing FODMAP intolerance. So things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, pathogens, and just general dysbiosis um, can all play a part in developing FODMAP intolerance. By testing for and addressing those underlying factors, you may be able to improve your tolerance of FODMAP foods. After you've been tested and you know what's going on, oftentimes a gut healing diet and supplement protocol can really improve FODMAP tolerance. So what I mean by this is usually it's a combination of eradicating any harmful or overgrowing bacteria um, and adding in probiotics and just generally balancing the gut flora. This is really something you'd want to work with a practitioner to do. Uh, I really wouldn't recommend trying to do it on your own. But it can be really helpful for someone who wants to improve their FODMAP tolerance, as it sounds like this person definitely wants to do. However, I'm going to be the bearer of bad news here. Uh, You're likely going to need to be on a low FODMAP diet for some amount of time. You'll feel better by eliminating these foods that are obviously causing some of these unwanted symptoms for you. Plus, we just don't want to be overwhelming the GI system with things it can't handle while we're trying to fix any underlying issues. So when I work with a patient who's FODMAP intolerant, we want to know what's going on in their gut and work on improving that balance of the gut flora. But while we're doing this, the patient is definitely on a low FODMAP diet for the reasons I just stated. So I will say that people vary a lot with their FODMAP intolerance, um, and this may be the case for for this person as well. Some can be on a low FODMAP diet for a long time, along with healing any underlying factors, and still be pretty sensitive to FODMAPs at the end of it. But I do find that for most people, they're able to add some small amounts of FODMAPs back into their diet after a while, and they do fine with it. And some people, you know, they can eat tons of FODMAPs at the end of this, and they're perfectly fine. So it really just depends on the person. So it sounds like this listener knows which FODMAP foods that they're sensitive to, Um, But for others who just classify themselves as FODMAP intolerant, you may want to start on a stricter low FODMAP diet and then test some of the higher, you know, or the more, the foods that contain more FODMAPs, um, depending on their class. So whether they are high in fructose or lactose or fructans or anything else, Um, because some people are more sensitive to some of those classes versus other. And, you know, in my opinion, it's good to find out which ones you can handle so that you're not unnecessarily restricting your diet. So my favorite FODMAP chart to use when I'm doing this with patients is from uh, the Paleo Dietitian site, which I'll link to here. Now, she separates out foods by safe, be careful, and avoid categories. 
And I will say that I've used a lot of other FODMAP lists out there, but I find hers to be the mo most accurate and my patients do the best with that one versus other ones um, when they're kind of following the you know, safe and avoid categories. So what I usually do is I'll have people start by only consuming foods on the safe list. And then once their symptoms are under control, we'll try some of the be careful foods, which when, I, when I'm working with patients, I usually find that they either do perfectly fine with a be careful food or they have a somewhat severe reaction to. It really never tends to be an in-between reaction for whatever reason. It's kind of an either-or thing. So then once, they, once they've done that and they've gone through those you know, extra be careful foods and they separate out which ones are working for them and which ones aren't, then if we think there may be a certain class of foods that they may be able to tolerate, so for example, if they went through the be careful list and all of the lactose foods they did fine with, we can then try adding some of those um, foods even from the avoid category that contain lactose and see how they react. And I find that this process tends to work really well and it eliminates some of the unnecessary restriction that people may be doing if they decide to take out all FODMAPs. So I don't know what this reader or listener, I guess, has done in terms of figuring out which foods, uh, which FODMAP foods they're sensitive to. Obviously, uh, he or she has a couple that they're more concerned about because they're some of their favorites, but they may just be frustrated because they have to take out so many of these foods. And by doing this kind of FODMAP elimination challenge diet, they can see Maybe if there are some that they could tolerate either in smaller amounts or um, you know, some that they do perfectly fine with that they didn't know about, that might make following this lower FODMAP approach for some time while they're working on, on all the other underlying factors a little bit easier for them. So since this listener asked specifically about supplements to address FODMAP intolerance, I do want to add that when I used to work at a gastroenterology clinic, one of the doctors often... Um, recommended Beano to patients with FODMAP intolerance. And for some people it did help. I don't know if that's something that I really would have guessed would help a lot of people. I, I mean, I could see it helping if really legumes are the only problem that, that's happening for someone. But for most people, I think if they're eating a lot of the, the vegetables and fruits that are causing some issues, it may not be particularly helpful. But, you know, and of course on a paleo diet, we're not really eating legumes anyway. But that did help some people. Now these are people on kind of standard American type diets. So um, I'd be interested to see if it does help anyone who's FODMAP intolerant on a paleo diet. So that's the only thing that I've heard of that helps somewhat. And, you know, I'm not sure if it would help someone on a paleo diet doing a low FODMAP diet or, you know, to tolerate more FODMAPs. So give it a shot, certainly can't hurt, I don't think, and let us know if that helps you at all. But other than that, you know, for supplements, really it's just supplements that would help the underlying problems going on like dysbiosis. So, you know, probiotics would be helpful, gut healing supplements like, you know, marshmallow root, DGL, those kinds of things if there's uh, intestinal permeability, and just basically fixing the gut flora balance can be very, very helpful and eradicating, you know, if there's SIBO or some other kind of pathogen, all of that really, really helps to improve FODMAP tolerance. So unfortunately, you know, there aren't supplements out there really that let those of us who are FODMAP intolerant digest FODMAPs much better and not experience symptoms. The best approach is really to just get tested for any gut flora abnormalities and treat those 
along with a low FODMAP diet for a while and then try adding in some of those FODMAP foods to see how they're tolerated. So it can be somewhat of a long process, but unfortunately, sometimes the hard way is the best way. So I'll leave it with that. Yeah, well, um, something that I was thinking when looking at this question, and this might be a little bit uh, a little bit weird or sound a little strange, but I would wonder with this person, when they say gas, do, do they mean like abdominal distension or do they mean a little bit of, um, you know, malodorous gas production? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And I think... You know, if if you're having discomfort or if it's really significant gas, then the whole FODMAPs thing is definitely something that is worth looking into. But I think another issue could potentially be that this person may think that any gas is unhealthy. and Right, abnormal, right. right. And with foods like the broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbage, those are very high sulfur-containing foods, which is really good as far as health goes because there's a lot of benefits to sulfur-containing foods that, um, you know, I, I'm not going to go into now because that could be a whole other podcast, but <laughs> uh, suffice it to say that sulfur is really healthy for you. But one of the problems with eating a lot of sulfur is that you end up having some sulfur- scent to your flatulence, like you said. (laughs) And I know this is a little bit, you know, potentially something that could be embarrassing or not something you necessarily want to have, but I'd like to remind the listeners that it could actually be something that's just a normal reaction to sulfur-containing foods. If you're having a little bit of, um, you know, off-smelling gas from those kind of foods don't necessarily jump to conclusions that you have some kind of dysbiosis or something like that because it really could just be that that's the smell that comes from that end of your body when you eat the sulfur-containing foods. Right, very true. You know, in our hyper-hygienic society, it's like, oh my gosh, gas is so gross and unhealthy. And, you know, it's really, it's a normal process, as gross as it sounds. It's really not something that people should be terrified of. And if the person, like I said, is having stomach pain or, you know, if it's really, really bad smelling gas to the point where it's like you think it smells like like unhealthy, then that's one thing. But Right, again, or just excessive amounts of gas, too. So... Yeah, it sort of depends on whether it's really excessive in amount or smell or you're having other symptoms along with it, like Laura mentioned, um, which, yeah, I guess I'm answering this question from a standpoint of, of trusting them and or I guess just assuming that it's excessive. But you're right. It could absolutely just be a normal reaction to these types of foods. And different people may just experience a little bit um, of different types of gas with different foods. And that's probably completely normal. Yeah. So sorry for taking it down that rope, but I, uh, the route, but I I feel like people, yeah, I just feel like people need to kind of you know, be okay with some bodily functions that are not, you know, completely sterile or, you know, (laughs) it's not necessarily a sign of gut dysbiosis if you have a little bit of gas here and there. So yeah, again, like Kelsey said, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you need to pay attention to if it's really excessive, but once in a while, it's not the end of the world. So Right. And, you know, if you're thinking that it might be FODMAP intolerance, you can always look at that list of foods. And if you're, you know, if you look at that avoid list and you're like, check, 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 all of these cause problems for me, then, you know, it's more likely that that's probably an issue. Whereas 
if you look at that list and it doesn't necessarily jump out at you that any of those are particularly problems other than the few that you mentioned, um, yeah, it could just be that's your reaction to those foods and you can always take them out. But also just thinking about what Laura said is that, you know, these things are kind of normal. So it's not, it's not something that we need to be overly concerned about as long as there's no other major issues going along with it. Right. And one issue I would say people should keep an eye on if, if they're concerned is, um, stool consistency. So if you're, if you're going number two and it looks normal and it's a good consistency and you're not having either constipation or diarrhea or loose stools, then this gas may not be something that's pathological. Whereas if you are having stool changes, then I would be more apt to thinking that it is something pathological. So, which means disease or, you know, dysbiosis related. Great. Well, thanks for that input, Laura. I think that's really helpful to just, and I'm glad you brought it up because you're right. People sort of just think a lot of times that some of these bodily functions are always abnormal, which is definitely not the case. Right. Unless they're, uh, you know, 22-year-old frat boy, and then they think it's awesome. Right. True. (laughs) So, all right. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone, for this week's episode of Ask VRD. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, please feel free to leave us a nice comment on iTunes so that other people can find us there. And if you want to ask a question, make sure you submit your question through the link on Chris's site, and who knows, maybe we'll answer your question on the next show. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. All right. See you next time, Kelsey. Great. Thanks, Laura. Take care.